Well, this morning we make our way into the final chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been studying together for many months now. And in our study of this great book, we are looking at really how it is that we are to grow in the Christian faith. This idea of Christian growth began back in chapter 4, at the very beginning of that chapter, where we were exhorted in the first two verses that we are to grow, we are to excel still more in spiritual growth and development. And beginning then in verse 3, and what will extend really all the way through chapter 5, is the Apostle Paul exhorting us in detail In what kind of things should we grow? We're to grow in purity. That's what we saw in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 4. We are to grow in love, chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. We are to grow in hope, verses 13 to 18 in chapter 4. And now we come to chapter 5 and he continues the theme. He wants us to continue to grow. And this time the emphasis is on awareness. Grow in awareness. Our passage this morning is going to continue our conversation that we began a few weeks ago on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all tend to make decisions based on what we expect to happen next, don't we? If the CEO, your corporate CEO, happens to make his way to your office this week, my guess is you spruce things up a little bit. When my parents come to town, I'm promising you the house looks a little bit different. If you knew that you were going to have the pastor and his family over for dinner, you'd probably put a shirt on when you open the door, and you'd probably have the table set and the food ready. Big events typically make us more aware of ourselves. That's not a bad thing. It's probably a good thing. We live differently when we live expectantly. And awareness about our present living in light of Christ's second coming is really what this passage is all about. Now back in chapter 4 in verse 13 we began a detailed description of all of the events related to the return of Christ. And that was the beginning stage in verses 13 to 18. The concern there was what had happened to dead loved ones and friends if, in fact, the day of the Lord had come, the day of God's judgment had come, then they had died and they were buried and the day of the judgment had come. If there's no resurrection of those to life, then they would grieve, those Christians would grieve because there is no hope for them. They misunderstand what the future's about and so they grieve in the present. Now, instead of looking at how we're to respond to those who have perhaps passed away in light of maybe misunderstanding the events of the end, we turn now to see and talk about and focus upon not those who have died, but those who are living, us. How do we live in the here and now in light of the coming of Christ? Now we'll see this in detail in the first three verses that we're going to look at this morning. It describes a future event known as the day of the Lord. You see it referred to in verse 2. You yourselves know full well that, and here's the phrase, the day of the Lord will come. He puts it in a future aspect. It will come just like a thief in the night. 
That's really the idea and the emphasis of these verses. It's all about the day of the Lord. Verses 4 through 11 in this chapter will then exhort us how to live now in light of the coming future day of the Lord. And that emphasis is on being aware. You see that emphasis in verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us, what? Be alert and be sober. Or verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. We need to be aware and alert and awake Because the coming day of the Lord is on the horizon. And we need to be ready. We need to be alert regarding it. About the way we're living right now. Because that day is coming. So these verses, verses 1 through 11, are a call for Christians to grow in their present awareness in light of what they understand about the future. So how is it that we're to grow? How do we grow our awareness How do we grow more alert in anticipation of the return of Christ? Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack three different ways that Christians should encourage growth in our present living in light of the second coming of Christ. Just three different ways Christians should encourage growth in our present awareness, our present living in light of God's future plans. We're just going to look at the first one this morning. Yes, we're going to go slow. Slower is better. Most of the time. Just look at one this morning. The next two, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. How do we grow in our awareness? This morning, I want us to focus on one primary thing. That is to be clear about the future. Be clear about the future. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing in these first three verses. Be clear about the future. If you're clear about the future, you will be aware in the present. So be clear about the future. Friends, the Bible is not silent about what is to come. It has a great deal to say about it. And the Bible is not as unclear about the future as some may think. Verses 1 to 3 are all about this particular period of time within the future events associated with Christ's second coming known as the day of the Lord. It is the focal point of these verses as it's highlighted in verse 2. You don't have to have anybody else to write anything to you because you know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This is all about the day of the Lord. All of these verses are. In fact, as we pointed out over the last couple of weeks from what we learned from First and Second Thessalonians, someone, a false teacher, has arisen within the church in Thessalonica, and they have begun bringing incorrect information about the day of the Lord to this church, suggesting that what Paul had originally taught this congregation was inaccurate or not true, that new revelation has come, and they are leading this church to believe that they are now presently in the day of the Lord. And that was disturbing. It was disturbing their faith, their confidence in the present, because now it seems that the future has come. 
You can see it again over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to put your eyes on it just so you can see what is happening to this congregation. In 2 Thessalonians 2 in verse 1, Paul says, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and within the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly our gathering together to him. Our gathering together to him is what was described in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians verses 13 to 18. And he says to them, don't mix this up. Do not interpret your present incorrectly. Verse 2, he says, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that, and watch this, that the day of the Lord has come. There you get a sense. Someone is saying to this church, the day of the Lord has come. Well, where does that put our gathering together to him? How does that work out? That's the whole discussion. In fact, he goes on in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians to describe a number of events, a number of issues that have to happen before the Lord returns, and they all happen within the day of the Lord. How do you know you're in the day of the Lord? Well, look at verses 3 through 12 and see if you see these things happening. And if they're not happening, then you know this is not the day of the Lord. You should not interpret your circumstances as that. Now remember, this church was going through significant persecution People were being martyred for their faith. There was incredible opposition and it seemed as if everything was imploding on the church at this time. So they began to look at this and say, well, maybe this is the day of the Lord. I see people doing that all the time, don't you? They look at the world and they look at the situation and how bad it is and they say, ah, the Lord, it has to be any day now. Now he must be be ready to come because now we see all of these things happening. But be careful with that. Yes, we should live expectantly, but these things that we're seeing even now in our world are not what is being talked about in these verses. So be careful. Be very careful. If you believe that this was the day of the Lord, that would radically impact how you saw things right now. It would impact how you live right now. In fact, we get some indication from both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that there could have been some who were living lives of laziness and idleness because they thought they were in the days of God's judgment and the tribulation that ushers in the Lord's final return. Why work? Why maintain a home? Why pay attention to personal responsibilities? The Lord's going to come. He's going to take it all and remake it all anyway, and we're going to live in the kingdom. Why worry about it? At the very least, we can surmise from what we read in these letters that the possibility existed that some could become less aware of the way they were conducting themselves, perhaps morally they were becoming lax, maybe they were paying little attention to what their leaders were teaching them, they were less joyful in their conduct, they were less prayerful, less expectant in the Lord's return, less grateful for what God was doing, not correctly discerning supposed prophecies from the Lord. All of that we would gather is happening in this church, especially in light of what we read at the end of chapter 5. They were losing hope. If this is the day of God's judgment, then what hope do we have? They're unclear about the future. 
And being unclear about the future means you live improperly in the present. So what is it that we need to be clear about in regard to the second coming of Christ, particularly the day of the Lord? What do we need to be clear about? Well, I'm going to break this down into just three different parts here. The three different parts that we need to be clear on so that we understand the future, that we're clear on the future. Let me lay them out for you. I'm going to take a little while on the the very first one because it's so important to the whole understanding of what we're, we're looking at here. First of all, be clear about what the day of the Lord is. Be clear about what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord is a season in the second coming of Christ that begins with Jesus confirming the saints. It continues with judgment and discipline of the nations. It culminates with his vindication of his people and establishment of his kingdom on the earth. That's the day of the Lord. Did you get all that down? Don't worry, I'm going to spend some time unpacking that, all right? In other words, the day of the Lord is not a single day. The day of the Lord encompasses many things that comprise a number of days. It's the season within the second coming of Christ known as the day of the Lord. Now, I want to show you that in the Bible. I want you to put your eyes on it. I want you to jot some particular scriptures down so that you can actually see what the Bible says and how it unpacks an understanding of what the day of the Lord is. Now, likely, Paul did not have to write anything to the Thessalonians to describe what the day of the Lord is because we already know from what he said, he's already taught them about this. He taught them about this when he was with them originally. So they knew what the day of the Lord is. So to make sure that we all are on the same page with Paul and the Thessalonians, let's unpack what is the day of the Lord. In general, the focus of the day of the Lord is a a period of judgment. It's a period of judgment and discipline. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is likely a technical phrase picked up out of the Old Testament. And it refers to specific elements related to the final coming of the Lord, and they emphasize judgment. Now, let me unpack the various aspects that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament that describe for us what the day of the Lord is. I'm going to unfold... I think I've got six of them here. If I miss the count, you, you let me know. I'm sure some of you will if I miss the count. Let me just unpack six different elements connected to the day of the Lord that we see in the Bible. First of all, the day of the Lord is a judgment of unbelieving nations. It's a time of judgment toward unbelieving nations. Now, there are many places in the Old Testament that depict the coming of the Lord in final judgment, and that final judgment emphasizes a judgment over all of the unbelieving nations that dwell on the earth. I'm just going to point out a few of them, just to put your eyes on them. There are many more than what I'm going to read to you this morning. Just jot down, I'm not going to make you find Zephaniah because we could be here a while if we're going to try to find Zephaniah, but just jot down Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 14 to 18. Just jot it down, then I want you to listen to it. 
Listen to this description of God's judgment. Zephaniah 1, verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen. The day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry. Against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's fearful, isn't it? Now that's not just a description of something that was happening in the ancient days of Zephaniah. It's too large for that. It encompasses all the inhabitants of the earth. It's a day that encompasses everyone who dwells on the earth. That's the day of the Lord. It is coming judgment from God on the nations, the unbelieving nations of the world. Now, there is a place I do want you to turn in your Bible to, and that is the book of Joel. So if you can find Daniel, Daniel's one of those bigger books, right, in the Old Testament. If you can find Daniel, head to the right, and you'll find then Hosea. And then guess who's next? Joel. So it's not that hard. I want you to turn to the book of Joel. I want you to look at chapter 3 just for a moment. We're going to spend a little time here, both here and in the next point that we make. But look at chapter 3, verse 9, because I want you to see what the day of the Lord means for the unbelieving nations. Verse 9. Joel chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among who? The nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble. The Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. What happens to the nations in the day of the Lord? It's severe judgment. 
The book of Revelation even picks up on this and even ascribes this passage to the Lord Jesus when he returns and he actually marches through the nations, wiping them out as he wears a white robe and splatters their blood as if he were walking through a wine press. It's fierce language. Paul brought this up to the Athenians when he preached the gospel to them on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 verse 31. He said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's a day coming when God will judge all the nations of the earth. Now, there are many other places that I could go to to show you God's judgment on the nations, the unbelieving nations of the earth. These are just two. And if I read the others, they would sound very much like this. The day of the Lord is a season of judgment on the unbelieving nations of the earth. Now, secondly, the day of the Lord is also a season of discipline and restoration of unbelieving Israel. It is a season of discipline and restoration of unbelieving Israel. Again, there are many, many places we could go to look at this. But I'm going to keep us in the book of Joel just as an example. Because Joel seems to unpack more than any other of the biblical writers. He uses this phrase, the day of the Lord, more frequently than the other writers do. So I want you to see what he says about the day of the Lord, not just in regard to the unbelieving nations. Notice that he also focuses on Israel themselves. Now, he does this in a very interesting way. The day of the Lord in the book of Joel can refer to something that was happening in Joel's day, as it does in chapter 1, which would be an example to them of the coming judgment of God in their day of what ultimate judgment would look like in the final day of the Lord. For example... In chapter 1 of the book of Joel, in verse 14, listen to the prophet. He says, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. This is in Joel's day. Get everybody to the temple. Get everybody assembled. Why? Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then he begins to describe present activities that are there in Israel at this time and that God would bring judgment. Now, why would he describe the day of the Lord as something present? Well, this is common among the prophets. They will give you a near prophecy that will be fulfilled in their time so you could see an example of what would come far into the future and be the ultimate finalization of this idea of the day of the Lord, which he does in the second chapter. Chapter 1 highlights why Israel should pay attention now because of coming judgment, and yet chapter 2 goes beyond their present day into something far more final and future-oriented. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, And sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. What is this day going to be like? Verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. 
As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never, watch this, there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. What's he saying there? This aspect of the day of the Lord will be unique. It will not be like the day of the Lord that comes in their time. It will be far greater And nothing will ever be like it. It will be unparalleled. You will never have seen judgment like this. You will never see it again like this. Jesus would say something similar in Matthew chapter 24 when he describes a kind of tribulation to come that is unprecedented and it will not be done like this again. Now what does this judgment look like? Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. What's that sound like? Sounds like what we read in chapter 1, doesn't it? When he's gathering the people together. And who is he gathering? Well, in chapter 1, he was gathering the nation of Israel. Who is he gathering here? The same people. The same people. And yet here, as we learned in the first part of chapter 2, this is not a judgment they were going to see in their lifetime. This would be the final and ultimate judgment. Verse 16, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach. Who's he referring to? It's obvious, isn't it? Israel. Israel. A byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Verse 18. The Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. In the context, who are these people? Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you grain and new wine and oil. You say, wait a minute, I thought this was judgment. Right, it's judgment, it's discipline, and it's also restoration. I'm going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Who's he talking about? Israel. But I will remove the northern army far from you and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and stench, its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Who's he referring to? Israel. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. The tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years 
that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people, speaking of Israel, my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. And it will come after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. For behold, chapter 3, verse 1, in those days, what days? These days of God's judgment on the nations, but his discipline and restoration of Israel in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. What is God going to do? He's going to look at all of the discipline that he has brought on his people that brings them back to a place of repentance and belief and then he brings and showers them with his affection and fulfills the promise that he made to them all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 that they would be his people. He would be their God. And it's the finality of everything. The day of the Lord is a season of discipline and restoration of the nation of Israel. That's just another aspect. Let me give you a third aspect of the day of the Lord. Third, the day of the Lord is a season of vindication of all persecuted believers. It's a vindication of all persecuted believers. To see that, I want you to look back in the Thessalonian letters, turn back to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here Paul refers to the day of the Lord's return in final vengeance over his enemies in a way that vindicates those who have been oppressed. It's a vindication of persecuted believers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When is that relief 
coming. When is that vindication coming? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. What's going to happen in the day of the Lord? When the Lord comes back and descends to the earth with his angels in flaming fire, he deals out retribution toward the unbelieving in vindication of those they have oppressed who have believed in Christ. It's a day of vindication of those who are persecuted believers. We won't take the time, but it is a fascinating study to look at Revelation chapter 6 through 16. Just jot it down. And what you want to trace in Revelation 6 through 16 is a particular group of people. They're mentioned in verse 9. They are saints who come out of a time of persecution and tribulation. And they have been They have been martyred for the sake of Christ and they find themselves in heaven in the altar of God and they're crying out, asking God, when will you vindicate our blood? Now that's really fascinating because the rest of the judgments that are poured out as you see them in chapters 7 through 16 are in response to the angels going and dipping into the coals of that altar. And we're told that that altar represents the prayers of those saints ascending to God. And we know what those prayers are. When will you vindicate us? And so he dips into that and he pours, the angel will pour them out on the earth and they are judgments on the earth vindicating the saints. It's very clear. All the judgments in all their sequential order as they're mentioned from chapter 6 through chapter 16 are in response to the saints saying, when will you vindicate us? This is all a description of the season of God's judgment when he vindicates those who have been oppressed by the unbelieving nations because of their belief in Christ. So the day of the Lord is a time when the saints of God are vindicated through God's judgment, his final judgment on those who dwell on the earth. Fourth, the day of the Lord is a season of what we could refer to as the destruction of the man of lawlessness. The destruction of the man of lawlessness. Again, look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The destruction of the man of lawlessness. This happens on the day of the Lord. You remember we read the first two verses of chapter 2 where someone has said that the day of the Lord has come. Paul's response is in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. What will not come? The day of the Lord. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first, that is, people turning away from the Lord in great number, unless the apostasy comes first and... The man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Well, who is this man of lawlessness? What is he like? 
Well, it says very clearly in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, just as a note here, there have been several people throughout history, Israel's history, who have tried this sort of thing. Antiochus Epiphanes did something similar in between the Old Testament and the New Some would suggest that something similar happened in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. There have been many attempts to defile the temple. But listen to this man of lawlessness. This seems to be someone no one has seen in human history yet or will ever see again because it goes on to say in verse 5, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now? Who's the him? The man of lawlessness. You know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then, verse 8, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Who destroys this man of lawlessness? The Lord Jesus Christ does. When does Jesus destroy the man of lawlessness? When he returns to the earth in final judgment on the day of the Lord. He further goes on to describe the man of lawlessness in verse 9. This is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. It's a pretty powerful individual, isn't it? Interestingly, Revelation 13 describes the rise and rule of the man of lawlessness. Referred to there as the beast of the sea, Revelation 13, 1 through 10. And you'll read similar activities from the beast that comes from the sea under the activity of the dragon. Revelation 12 tells us the dragon is Satan. The beast of the sea is one who sets himself up as God and causes all the world to worship him as God. Just as Second Thessalonians 2 describes here. What is fascinating about that is when you get to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 19, 19 says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, that is Christ, who is descending to the earth with his his saints and his angels to make war. They are making war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ slaying the man of lawlessness and those who follow him in final retribution and judgment. All of that's in concert with his judgment on the unbelieving nations. So the day of the Lord 
includes the rise and the fall of this man of lawlessness. Some would refer to him popularly as the Antichrist, but Second Thessalonians refers to him as the man of lawlessness. Revelation as the beast, the beast of the sea. So that's a part of the day of the Lord. Number five, the day of the Lord also includes the establishment of Jesus' kingdom on the earth. The establishment of Jesus' kingdom on the earth. Now again, I'll just have you jot these verses down. I won't have you turn to these minor prophets. I just want you to put your eyes on them. These are just a few of the verses we could pull out to describe the day of the Lord. Zechariah 14, verse 9. Uh, you could read the entire chapter of Zechariah 14, and it would do your, your heart good to read it, but you will see this is the coming day of the Lord. And in verse 9 it says, The Lord, when he comes on that day, will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. It is in the day of the Lord when it happens in finality that he sets up his rule over all the earth. Another reference, Obadiah 1. You see why I'm not going to have you turn there? Again, it's kind of like Zephaniah. We'd be, we'd be flipping to the contents and then and you can go home and find it. Take your time. Read Obadiah. Obadiah 1 verse 15 For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. And then in verse 20, And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Shepherd, will possess the cities of the Negev. And listen what will happen. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. When does that happen? On the day of the Lord. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Which again is precisely what the book of Revelation describes when the king of kings and lord of lords descends from heaven in chapter 19. When he descends, he destroys the man of lawlessness, the beast, and the false prophet. We saw that in verses 20 and 21. And then listen, chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. Who was that? Remember those saints crying out for vindication? This is the end result of that in the book of Revelation. The saints who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ will reign with him for a thousand years. When Christ returns, he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth and he rules on the earth. That's a really powerful description of the day of the Lord. There's a lot involved in that, isn't there? And it's a day focused primarily on judgment. Now, there's one other element, because that's just five, right? One, two, three, four, five. And I said there would be six. Let me show you another element. But it's not called the day of the Lord. You say, now, why are you doing this to us? It's only found in the New Testament. And it's not referred to by the technical phrase, the day of the Lord. It's actually referred to as the day of Christ or the day of the Lord Jesus. This is interesting. And it is connected with his return. However, in the New Testament, when we see this, it never refers to judgment. It never refers to the condemnation of the nations or the destruction of the man of lawlessness. It always refers to the confirmation of believers and their ultimate salvation. So that's number six, the day of the Lord, even though it's called here the day of Christ, I still believe that it happens in this time. And by the way, the day of the Lord, if, if you just studied that carefully in the in second Thessalonians, first Thessalonians, you will see the Lord refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet when it's referred to by this phrase, the New Testament phrase, the day of Jesus or the day of Christ, it's always referring to the ultimate salvation of believers, not to the judgment of those who are on the earth. For example, jot down these verses, Philippians 1.10. Philippians 1.10, Paul's praying for them that they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. What happens at the day of Christ? They are found to be blameless. These believers, these saints are found to be blameless in Christ. Philippians 2.16 you are holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. What happens on the day of Christ? The saints are presented to God and all of the ministry that we have poured ourselves into is shown to be true and the saints are found pure and holy before God. It's the day of Christ. All our efforts were not vain. They were full Second Corinthians 1.14, Paul says, We are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. When are we going to find out that everything that we've done on this earth and everything that we've done with each other and the way we've poured our lives into one another, read the word and prayed and battled sin and overcame sin, when are we going to see that it was all worth it? In the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, when there's, there's confirmation of all of that. Just one other reference, 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, in that section about church discipline and the man who had his father's wife in immorality, 
And Paul says to deliver that man over to Satan. Right, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In the day of the Lord Jesus. Every reference to the day of Christ or the day of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament seems to be a confirmation of believers, not the destruction of unbelievers. Why? Well, likely because that phrase, the day of the Lord, is a highly technical phrase pulled and plucked from the Old Testament that refers to the judgment of God. And yet, as Paul indicated in chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, what was the next thing that he expected to happen? What was he expecting? Not the day of the Lord necessarily, but the day of the Lord to be launched, not in judgment, but in salvation. And the believing dead to be caught up, resurrected, and the living believers to be caught up into the air to meet the Lord in the air where they would always be with the Lord. And that would then satisfy what he had been praying for in chapter 2, verse 19, and in chapter 3, verse 20, about them being confirmed in the presence of the Father at the coming of Jesus. In other words, the day of the Lord is launched in the resurrection of the believing dead and the catching away of those living believers and it begins the judgment of God on the earth. The believers are caught into the air. The unbelieving world is judged on the earth, which is precisely the way the book of Revelation describes the judgments of God. They are on those who dwell on the earth. That's a phrase repeated over and over and over in the book of Revelation about God's judgment, final judgments during that season of the day of the Lord. So what we've done here is we've just toured what the Bible says about the day of the Lord. I would surmise that the Apostle Paul had done that and unpacked that and described that to them because they were a people, we learned from chapter 1 verse 10, they were a people who were waiting for the Lord to come. That was a part of their being Christians. And that's why Paul says, I don't have to write anything more to you. You know this accurately. You know this well. The day of the Lord is the judgment of the nations, the discipline and restoration of Israel, the vindication of persecuted saints, the destruction of the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, the establishment of Jesus' kingdom on the earth, and it all begins with the confirmation of believers in heaven before the Father. So if you're clear on that, if you see that, there's no way you would look at your present circumstances and say this is the day of the Lord. No, it's persecution to be sure. Persecution that will find God's judgment to be sure. This isn't the day of the Lord. We're still waiting. We're expecting. It should come. So be clear about what the future day of the Lord is and you will grow then in your present awareness. Be clear about what the day of the Lord is. Now quickly, let me just show you two more items to be clear on about the future. It won't take us long. Second, be clear about when the day of the Lord will come. Be clear about when the day of the Lord will come. Now remember, verses 1 to 3, 1 Thessalonians 5 is all about the day of the Lord. We just unpack what that day is. When is it going to come? Well, that's the issue that is on their minds. 
If someone has said, this is the day of the Lord, and they're grieving over loved ones who have died, and he says, no, this is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins with the resurrection of those believing dead, and you're catching away into heaven. So this is not it. What would be the natural question to come to their mind then? All right, so when is it? Then when is it? And that's what Paul does in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, what's he focus on? The times and the epochs of what? As to when the day of the Lord will come. When is it going to start? Now, that's a normal question. It's a normal question. In fact, if you were to spend some time, we won't do it now, but if you went to Daniel chapter 12, it's the last chapter in the book of Daniel, Daniel is shown many things about the coming day of the Lord by an angel. And there's actually an angel standing there and he's, he's, it's as if he's verbalizing what is in Daniel's mind. Daniel's being told what's going to happen. Resurrection is included, the coming of Christ's kingdom, all of that. And this angel says, so when's this going to happen? Daniel's like, yeah, when is it going to happen? I want to know that. It's a normal question. You remember the disciples? Matthew 23, Jesus just weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to leave your temple desolate. I'm going to remove the presence of God. He then walks out of there and he says, the son of man, the Lord will not come again. You'll not see me in this place again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. He leaves with his disciples. They're all in a quandary. What is he saying? What is going on? They sit on the Mount of Olives and look across the Kidron Valley at the temple. And he says, do you see that building? Do you see those stones? Not one is going to be left on another. And the disciples' question is, when? When is that going to come? When are those things going to happen? When is this judgment coming? When will be the end of the age? That's chapter 24, first couple of verses. You know what he does? He doesn't tell them when. He gives them signs of coming judgment. He gives them descriptions of the end and how it will all happen. He doesn't tell them when, but that's what's on their mind. That didn't satisfy them. You remember after the resurrection? Just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he's with them on the Mount of Olives. And in Acts chapter 1, they ask this question. Is it now? Is this when you're going to restore the kingdom? Because I don't think they appreciated that the first coming of Christ would have some stages to it. They expected when Messiah came and suffered and was raised, he would then set up his kingdom on the earth and bring about the finality of all those prophecies, destroy the nations, etc., etc., like we just talked about. Is it now? You remember what he told them? It's not for you to know. Well, that's not satisfying, is it? You have to live expectantly. In fact, in Matthew 24... Jesus would tell them that as well. Of the day and the hour, no one knows. Everybody's curious about that. I think the Thessalonians were curious about that. All right, they get it. So in chapter four, the catching away, 
All right, so then when does the day come? If this isn't the day of the Lord, when's it going to come? And that's what he picks up in chapter 5. When's that going to come? Well, you don't have anything that's needed to be written to you about that. Nothing has to be written to you about that at all. You already know. You remember, this was a well-taught church. You know these things. I've taught you these things. Now, that's not to say that the Bible doesn't talk about times and seasons. The word times here is the word chronos, and it refers to either days or days of the week or kind of calendar-like time. Epochs is just the word that refers to seasons of times. We speak of seasons of time, a season of trial, season of suffering, seasons like the fall. The Bible's replete with discussions of time, by the way. If you read Daniel chapter 9, he talks about 70 weeks and 26 weeks and 62 weeks. And he speaks of time, times and a half time, 1,290 days, 1,335 days. Revelation talks about 42 months, 1,260 days, time, time and a half times again. Revelation talks about 42 months and even 1,000 years. I mean, the Bible has some discussion on time, doesn't it? And it even describes seasons like the day of the Lord and all that's associated with the day of the Lord. But as to when those times and seasons will happen, no one knows. No one knows. The Bible doesn't discuss when exactly that's going to happen. Paul's taught them that. But someone said, well, it's now. He says, no, you don't need to, you don't need to know that. That's, this isn't it. People are always trying to figure this out, aren't they? I've got a book in my library. Even though Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, there's a book in my library called The Day and the Hour. <laughs> it's wonderful. And he won't tell us what year, but he predicts the actual day and the hour. And then I, I always hold on to this one. God's judgment day is near October 28th 1992 Jesus is coming again why are you laughing because we're still here right I love keeping it's getting a little faded 30 years old now 30 years I just like keeping that around and it's all a wonderful biblical description on why it'll be on that date no no one knows those specific times so when is he coming when's the day of the Lord beginning you don't, you don't need anything more to be written to you. If you are not satisfied with what you have in your Bible about the day of the Lord and to live expectantly of that day, then you're looking for something the Lord has chosen not to give you. Live expectantly of that coming. Third, don't just be clear about when. Be clear about how the day of the Lord will come. Be clear about how the day of the Lord will come. How's it going to come? Well, it's going to come three different ways. It'll come unexpectedly. You see that in verse 2. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, how? Just like a thief in the night. What does that mean? This isn't hard. This, isn't, this is not hard. This is just like a thief in the night. You don't ask the thief when to come. You don't prepare. You don't set a date or a time. The thief comes when you don't expect him to come. That's how he's successful, right? The Lord's coming, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. And you know that full well. It will come like a thief. That's found in many places. First Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
Revelation 3, 3, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You do not know what hour I will come to you. Revelation 16, 5, I am coming like a thief. It's unexpected. It's going gonna, it's gonna to feel as if everything's moving along and unexpectedly, then the day of the Lord hits. No one knows. It'll also come, secondly, suddenly. It'll be sudden. It's while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like labor pains. Did you notice the change from you to they in verse 3? While they are saying, not you, who's they? The people who live on the earth who are finding the judgment of God, they are saying peace and safety. This was a popular phrase in the first century because Roman, the Roman government, they, they had what they called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They secured peace over all the Roman Empire and security. If you were to attack anyone in the Roman Empire, you received the wrath of the Roman Empire, so it brought peace and security. And they would say, see how good it is to be a Roman? You have the peace and security of the Roman society. This will be a similar time when the powers that be in our world are saying everything's fine. It's all peaceful. You have security in us. That's just like the Lord, isn't it? To look at the unbelieving nations who say, we are your peace. We are your security. And then he comes to judge those nations suddenly in absolute unmitigated wrath suddenly unexpected like labor pains if you knew when the birth was going to happen if you knew when the labor was going to start why are you packing the bag and keeping it in your car you don't know when it's going to hit it's going to come it's unexpected third the day will come inescapably It'll come inescapably because that's what it says at the end. And they will not escape. They. It's not a reference to you because you are not a part of this day. In fact, he says that in verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath. They will receive wrath. You receive salvation. You are caught up into the air to meet the Lord in the air and confirmed in your salvation. They receive the day of the Lord, which is the wrath of God on the earth. Revelation 16, the kings of the earth. Revelation 6, 15, pardon me. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They want to get away and they can't get away from the coming wrath. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? No one can escape it. So if you would be clear about what's coming in the future, you would be aware of how you're living right now. If you're living expectantly of the coming of the Lord to take you away in salvation and bring his judgment to the earth, you would live in a way that is holy. You would build into each other so that we lose no one. You would long for the coming of Christ and never misinterpret what's going on around you because you are clear about what the day has in front of you. Be clear about the future. 
Now that sets us up for next week when we talk about how to be aware in the present. Let's pray together.